Welcome to Finding Proof, where we discuss all things early stage VC. We're your hosts, Thanasis and Jenny of the Proof Fund, and our goal is to get to know the best seed and early stage VCs out there. Today, we're speaking with Wes Blackwell, a partner at Scout Ventures. Scout is an early stage VC focused on frontier tech built by hard to access founders. Well, Wes, thank you so much for joining us today. I have had the privilege of knowing you for many years at this point, not to age us, but I am especially excited to have you on the podcast today. And so first things first, let's talk about your background and how you got into venture capital. Sure. No, Jenny, likewise. It's been fun to watch your career as well from a distance and then kind of reconnect. So high level, I always tell folks when they reach out to me, trying to get into venture capital, I was like, there's no linear path to venture capital. And I think I'm one of the best examples of that. I was fortunate enough to live out my childhood dream and, and go to the U.S. Naval Academy for undergrad and ultimately fly helicopters for the Navy afterwards. And, and that was uh, kind of jack of trade master of none, did combat and rescue counter piracy, ended up doing a pilot exchange with the Brits, which is a whole conversation in itself. I was in Prince Harry's flight school class, two deployments with the Brits, but totally got to live in fairytale English countryside with my wife as newlyweds. But then I ultimately finished my active duty time that I think is more relevant at the Naval Academy doing admissions and also teaching the leadership and aviation classes. So really evaluating talent and mentoring, which I think wasn't apparent to me then, but doing what we do now as seed stage investors at Scout, really evaluating talent and mentoring is kind of the core of what we do, I'd argue. Then that's when our paths crossed at, at Darden, got my MBA, also kind of immediately fell into a private equity operator, job scaling uh, business, and then realized I wanted to be an investor. And I was fortunate to be able to start angel investing on the side, look for a hyper-growth tech company because I, I knew what I didn't know and ended up taking a role, helped scaling a, a company in the D.C. area called LiveSafe Mobile that was actually recently acquired in a PE roll-up and led their enterprise implementation account management and tech support. So really got to appreciate the SaaS sales cycle and, and didn't realize it, but I was learning the cyber sales cycle as well. So it makes me a little bit more competent or at least I'd say more empathetic when working with our founders, but started advising more founders, mainly veterans coming out of the military and intelligence community being in the DC area. And then started advising at an accelerator in DC that helped offensive folks coming out of the intelligence community create commercial defensive companies. And then that's about when I heard about, kept hearing about Scout saying that, that, hey, if you really want to learn, you should spend time with these guys have done a lot of deals, especially veteran-led companies, which, you know, and then we'll come back to and then as well, but more importantly, they're just good guys, same ethical cut of cloth. And so my now partner and founder of Scout Ventures, Brad Harrison, and I got introduced, went up to New York, uh, spent more time with him, actually became an LP, which is, I think, an interesting, another kind of level of empathy. I'll tell you, like our junior guys always hate sending out LP stuff because they immediately get feedback from me. But I do think it's important to, to understand that side of the coin as well. But anyway, as our relationship grew, I was doing more angel investing stuff. Brad and I realized that we had become bullish on the same types of founders and deals, which we now call uh, hard to access founders and, and really deep tech. And what does that mean? So hard to access is veterans in the military, intelligence community, and preeminent research labs. So national labs and then Keystone academic labs where we have 
relationships. Brad went to MIT in the dot-com run-up, and that's really where he got bit by the venture bug. And so really, we just look back and realize, like, who were the founders that we enjoy spending the most time with, as well as Brad and the rest of the firm started out as a generalist and realized as, as the firm progressed, really what matters is you become more institutional is what differentiates you. But it's also where we saw the best returns and also where we felt like we had an unfair advantage. So do you guys help the companies navigate those channels and getting deals, or do you just leverage that network in your due diligence? How do you use that network? So we're looking at companies that are the hard to access, they're dual use, and they have some element of advanced frontier technology. We definitely feel like we have a network that is accretive to that, but that doesn't mean we also have a normal VC network, especially Brad and Brendan, who you know, really founded the firm. Brad's in Austin, Texas now. Brendan's in Boston. I always get the confusing Boston-Austin thing, but they're really Tribeca guys. And the firm was founded you know, in 2010. And in 2018, that's when we just went to a bit more distributed models who were a bit ahead of the COVID wave there. But so they have a deep New York network. They were like at the beginning of the New York scene. So we've done deals with a ton of folks. I know you guys had Inyak on recently and uh, we're really close to those guys. I love those guys. But really, that was part of bringing me on was to come down. Uh, my office is in Arlington, Virginia, to really start a D.C. presence. And I have relationships with the pointiest parts of our government, whether it be the intelligence community, military R&D labs, the national security innovation groups, military units. Um, so it's interesting. Brad is a 94 West Point grad. So his classmates are putting on two and three two-star general, whereas my classmates are commanders of SEAL teams and squadrons. So we kind of have unique access and reach and appreciation really for what the end user for the dual use as in government and commercial use cases of our, our companies. But then also national labs, you know, recurring meetings with a handful of national labs and other R&D centers. But then there's a whole, whole other like just ecosystem of angel investors and seed stage investors that kind of have an affinity for these groups. But all in all, like everyone's kind of leaning this way, especially COVID as the threat of like Western technological dominance kind of ramps up. I think people are, are realizing that this is a growth space. Yeah. Speaking of that, so what are some of the major trends that you're seeing right now in the space? So I'd say just for the more dual use space in general, yeah, I mean, there's a clear acceleration in certain areas like robotics. And obviously there's clear recognition now that artificial intelligence is a thing here to stay, but what does that actually mean? And, and there's also a recognition of how important it is to maintain critical technologies, whether it be supply chain dominance, or as you've seen the, the delays recently around semiconductors and car manufacturing. And it's hard to think these real hard lessons the Texas stuff, you know, Brad was in Austin. We had, we had to move like multiple board meetings and things because we had uh, Texas-based companies and they weren't sure they were going to have power. And so just starting to realize how fragile some of these systems are, but also just how critical it is to everyday life and making the world a better, safer place. But as far as like a trend I've seen in the sector, I think from the government side, everyone is trying to do the right thing. Everyone's leaning the right direction. Um, we're still antiquated in a lot of different ways. And, and I could wax on about a lot of this, but I think everyone's trying to do the right thing. And some folks are doing it better than others. The U.S. Air Force is held up as a positive example. I think there's going to be an interesting post-COVID look back on how many 
seed stage companies the U.S. Air Force propped up through their kind of uh, small business innovation research grants. But the Defense Innovation Unit is here to stay. The creation of the Space Force is a really exciting development. So the way the Marine Corps is to the Navy, so the Marine Corps is like part of the Navy, the Space Force is part of the Air Force. And so it's a new armed service, very new. They don't even know where their headquarters is going to be yet. Like they keep uh, batting it. It's a political football, I think, right now. But there's also certain states, I think, like space, for example. I think a lot of folks are talking about the defensive side or government side of space. But I think the commercial side of space is really exciting. Yeah. You talked about dual use quite a bit, and we've heard that from a lot of our other partners. And on the one hand, government has always been at the forefront of technology. I mean, dating back to even the internet can trace its origins back to DARPA, right? When they were looking to make communications in a nuclear age more robust, so they weren't caught off guard by the Russians, right? So they're always kind of at the forefront. But at the same time, historically, government has had a kind of a waterfall approach to designing big systems. Are you seeing a lot of change in government being interested to buy technologies that are more commercial so that they're more supported? That's one of the things that we've heard. But how do you see it from your standpoint? Yeah, 100%. And that's, I was like politely saying it, some are better than others, right? And if the, the government is definitely trying to learn how to buy software, I'd say only until really the last two or three years were they able to buy, you know, like SaaS licenses kind of stuff, right? But there's wide recognition, at least from the upper echelon, like the Defense Innovation Board, which is led by Eric Smith and other kind of luminaries, that we need to change the paradigm, like we have to, or we're going to lose the dominance. So literally the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence, which was like the CEO of Oracle and others, their report was published last night and is basically designed to be a wake-up call that we need to get our act together and that we need to really shift from R&D to real large-scale programs and not sort of doing these half measures and science projects that we've done in the past. From your standpoint, when you guys look at making investments, do they usually come in saying, hey, we're a commercial entity that wants to work with the government? Or do they come in and say, hey, we're selling to the government, but we want to go commercial? Like, how do you interact with the companies when they come to you? Sure. So I think it's important to understand our backgrounds as far as pretty much everyone on the team is unique in the fact that we've been an operator in the government in some capacity, whether it be military or intelligence community, but also have operated at hypergrowth tech companies and or like McKinsey type consultancies. So when companies come to us, they're on somewhere on the continuum of dual use. We've seen it all. Sometimes it's literally counseling a scientist coming out of a national lab that wants to commercialize something, or it could be a absolutely commercial only entity that knows they have government applications and they have no idea how to navigate that. And so we've been really good at leveraging government partnerships and non-dilutive funding that's not distracting to either the commercial or government roadmap. And how has your military background shaped you as an investor? And thank you for your service, by the way, but I'd be curious to hear about that. No worries, my pleasure. I think military folks that have operated in small elite teams, I think it actually translates really well. Because if you look at a startup at its core, it's a small elite team typically trying to do things that haven't been done before. And so for me, that was super useful. But then my time at the Naval Academy, where I was evaluating talent, really thought hard about how do you qualitative and quantitatively evaluate talent? Like, how do you tell that a ninth grader is going to be a good military officer 
nine years later, right? And that's sort of like the same paradigm shift that we're doing with the seed stage founder. Yeah. Ultimately having like the appreciation for the importance of character, and especially in the seed stage, because you really are just betting on the people. I mean, we look for coachability, compatibility, humility, probably top of the list for traits of founders. And it's because we know they don't know. Matter of fact, I will go out of my way to ask questions that I know they don't know to see if they'll tell me they don't know. Yep. And so, because if they're not telling me early, like it's going to be a hard road, but I also love military founders. And this goes for, I think, helping me as a VC, but also potential founders. It, you're used to being in a hard dynamic environment. And like, that's really a startup, right? You know, it's not going to be easy. Yeah. And how long do you typically talk to and work with a founder or management team before funding them? It varies, but typically more than six months, I'd argue. Um, we've moved faster, but we've also moved slower. Some of Brad's best deals have been multi-year relationships. We have a veteran-founded team that's a unicorn previous fund called Unite Us that founded by a Yale Air Force pilot and a West Point grad. And the Yale Air Force pilot, Dan Broman, was our one of our first venture fellows. Brad met him at Columbia Business School. And so they knew each other for a long time. We incubated the company and now they're off and running, closing major, they closed, I think, almost top 10 healthcare providers in the country. Awesome. And do you want to tell us about maybe one or two of your portfolio companies? Sure. So I think it's important to, I mentioned Unite Us, Unite Us and IDME and a handful of others. And you were at Squadra, Red Owl, which was Gosh Filippelli's company, are the ones that really got us to our thesis. You started out as journalists. And then, like I said, whittled that down to the hard access founders cultivating advanced frontier technologies. And so I think a good example of that would be Tomahawk Robotics, founded by a guy named Brad Truesdale. Here's a tip. Don't invest in a founder that's the same name as your partner. Super confusing on calls. But we have two partners with the name John. So <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. But John, navigating that. Right? You guys can appreciate that. Yeah. The, uh, Brad is a Navy SEAL and went to Harvard Business School. One of his professors at Harvard Business School was a board member at Harris Corporation and convinced him to take over a P&L there. A few P&Ls later, he was in the robotics P&L. They make some of the best ground robots for the military. And, and the head roboticist and him became good friends. And essentially, they surmised that the ground robots and drones, which at the time and still in some cases are very much built on their own bespoke operating systems are going to be built on a common operating system. And they're like, we should build it. So they built now what's called a universal robotic control system called Kinesis. And it's a family of software and hardware products that really is enabling this, this vision that they had. And it's, it's gained incredible traction across really all of uh, Western militaries, uh, U.S. Army, Marine Corps, Navy, UK, MOD, Australians. And we're talking to a bunch of others, but there are small rollouts now, but he's got some huge, huge rollouts on the horizon. And then he does have aspirations to go into the industrial market. We were starting to make our headways into oil and negatives. And we we're like, oh, maybe we'll hold off from that for a little bit. But just really cool technology. But the best thing about the company is the founders are just so great to work with and uh, just so well-respected in the space. I love it when I bump into German types anywhere and I'll say, hey, have you heard of these Tomahawk Robotics guys? And I always get just the most blowing uh, few. Oh, they helped me with this or that. And like, it's just, these are like the intangibles that you look for in founders, you know? Yeah. As a new parent, you're here I am. You think your company is like children, right? 
Yeah, and it's particularly interesting because early on in a market, and I would argue robotics is still early, a lot of the bets are vertical, but this sounds like it's a horizontal technology. At least they're starting from maybe military applications, but it's good to see that because we need some more platforms in all these spaces, right? To get more mature to kind of standardize and grow. Yeah, definitely. I think as a seed investor, you have to approach your investments from an asymmetric standpoint, because, you know, like cyber, for example, like we, I cannot invest in like a core cyber technology and win, like where there's too many out there. So you have to look at things that are on the fringes that we think are emerging. We're definitely making emerging bets, but in the kind of the drone robotics space, I mean, there's a pretty long list of failed drone and robotic startups that raised monster rounds from some of the best investors. And, and then kind of the commonality was they were all trying to do hardware. And so, Hardware is very difficult in that space. So we definitely, we're looking for a software deal and Tomahawk fits that uh, mold. One area that's particularly been talked about forever is the area of augmented reality and virtual reality. What have you seen in that space? And do you think that the military, which is particularly leading in those applications, right? Is that technology going to come and become a big trend in, with consumers? And I see you smiling, so you might, you must have strong opinions about it. <laughs> He's debating what he so can say we, and what he can't say. <laughs> yeah, so, so we've kind of grown to not love the AR VR space. It's a difficult space. There's a space for it. We've had failures in that space. Of all the sectors we invest, we love AR VR the most. So, what area of innovation are you most excited about? I mean, other than you talked a little bit about robotics, but is there one that kind of fits? Sure. In? So lately, our last couple of investments have been in space and quantum, but places I'm tracking are uh, space awareness, really everything from data. Basically, I think it's in the next three years, there's going to be more things launched in the space than have been launched in all of human history. And so there's a big push to understand what's in space. So, so just from a pure data perspective, but also like how do you identify things? And then also that's even led us into something I never thought we'd look at as space propulsion. So I'd say it's not rocket science, but it is. I get a lot of, a lot of mileage out, out of that out of that joke. Um, but then but no then uh, from the quantum front, quantum sensing and like GPS alternatives didn't really keep my eye out for something like that. And then we've done investments in this quantum security space, which is basically new ways of entropy or encryption. So quantum random number generating technology, we invested in a quantum photonics company called Anametric. We're looking hard at remote charging technologies. So that's mm -hmm. sort of drones, sort of medical devices, sort of electric vehicles or small robots. It crosses a lot of areas. And then I'm, I'm personally totally fascinated with genetic like CRISPR type stuff. Not that we have invested in that, but I'm really fascinated in genetic data storage. There's some DARPA programs around that, that. I mean, literally in a drop of water, there's enough DNA information to store the whole history of humanity in one drop of water's DNA. Wow. Wow. Mind-blowing stuff. So if we can figure out how to read and write in a fashion. Way. Um, right. Yeah. But that's more than uh, my interesting, but. But a high level, that's the stuff that we've been looking at a lot. You know, half of our current fund is some flavor of artificial intelligence. So computer vision, and obviously deep learning. Another one of my favorite companies is a company called DeepSig. That's the leading application of uh, deep learning in the wireless space. And so what excited you about DeepSig? And I'm sure you guys are machine learning, deep learning, everything, right? But they were the first one that really came to me on the wireless front. 
and I oddly had a network that knew a lot about this space, which I've found most venture capitalists do not. It's been tough for other VCs to diligence because you tell them, you know, 5G and they just don't really know what that means. But anywho, the more you dug into the CTO, Tim O'Shea, he's fairly well published and is widely recognized as an authority in the space. So that was one thing that was super exciting. But I really like the CEO, Jim Shea. We joke, you know, we look for gray-haired CEOs and, and he's just super calm. You can just tell our conversations really focus on or be meaningful. They've been a joy to work with. Do you worry about timelines to exit for companies that like that, that are kind of at the cutting edge of technology where adoption may take a few more years and you might be backing the winner, but it takes, do you worry about that at all or in your fund? Yeah. So, I mean, you definitely have to see decision investor oftentimes have to be a little bit more patient capital for sure. But to be fair, DeepSeek had software that they're ready to ship pretty soon after our investment, but there definitely are going into some markets that are new markets too. And so I appreciate that that can take a while. But we have a blend. We have some investments are very more on the R&D side, I would argue. And that's you kind of have different conversations with those founders where you're making sure that they're keeping their eye on the prize of the, the commercial use case and that they're really driving towards that. But yeah, time is life in these companies, like, because, you know, runway, runway, runway kind of thing. But so it's definitely top of mind. But some of these bigger bets, you know, if they hit, they're going to be huge. I mean, we joke that, ID.me, which is absolutely on fire right now, previous fund company, Unicorn, landing huge, huge nine-figure contracts. We joke they're, you know, seven-year overnight success, you know, so sometimes you have to be a little patient, but they're really on something, so. Right. So at this point, we're going to switch to our four standard questions, which we ask at the end of our podcast for every guest in an attempt to get to know them better. So the first one is our NVCA question. So the National Venture Capital Association advocates for public policy that supports the venture community and the American entrepreneurial ecosystem. So if there's one thing that you would change about the VC industry or one policy that you would advocate for, what would that be? Well, first off, I love those guys. Bobby, Justin, Charlotte, and the rest of the team are great. I would say for any other VC out there listening, if you're not a member, you should join we joined as definitely our emerging manager and early in the life cycle of the fund, fund, and we've gotten a ton out of that relationship. As far as the policy piece goes, there's clearly a lot of places that need work. Bobby and the team have pretty firm handle on that. I actually had the pleasure of doing the VC's DC trip, which was also interesting to actually see policy in action. I've never done that before, and that's an interesting experience as a citizen. But my bias is constantly on how the West will remain technologically dominant. So, you know, the government and specifically policymakers are starting to wake up to the fact that our position of technological dominance is not necessarily guaranteed. So there's a lot of things that can be done, but I think really for as far as venture capital goes, focusing on public-private partnerships and incentives that can make a big difference for society and really security. And what I mean by that is like, yes, I have a natural bias with my background that I'm going to care about these things, but all VCs should care, right? And so how do you do that? It's extending things like the QSBS, Qualified Small Business Stock Tax Advantage, which for those who don't know, it's like a basically a seed stage tax advantage where you can essentially invest. It encourages investors to invest in early stage companies at their earliest stages and not pay capital gains tax. But having something like that for critical technologies, I think would be a really good place to start to align incentives and to attract investment areas where we've fallen behind. 
Great. Second question is, if you were not a VC investor and money was not a concern, what career would you have? I've actually already done it, and I hope I get to do it again. I was a ski instructor at Far West Disabled Sports, which is the first disabled sports chapter in the United States. Their origins are in World War II veterans teaching Vietnam amputees how to ski. And then as a consequence, they're actually the authority for ski instructors nationally, both both abled and disabled, because if you can teach a disabled person to ski, you can teach an able-bodied person to ski. So literally, the book is written there, no pun intended. But yeah, I went out there right after I go off active duty and was a, a volunteer ski instructor and just loved it. The ability to take a paraplegic skier who never thought they'd feel the wind over their face again and give that to them. It was just beyond my dreams how much I got out of it. But incredible program and I encourage everyone to, to check it out. As a matter of fact, I'll plug our number one client was actually autistic children. So anyone that has that, it's, it's a great outfit. That sounds like a great experience and a great way to give back. Third question is, who is someone you look up to and why? This is the toughest one. A few ways I think I can answer this question, but I settled on the military spouses, and I'll use my wife as the example. I'm a parent of two young kids, and my respect for parents that have a semblance of any sort of career is like constantly skyrocketing. But then I put that in the context of single parents or military spouses when their spouses is away, uh, they're effectively a single parent. And so that's who I'd say, but then my wife is an example. A military career is not great for the spouse's career. I always joke, despite my best efforts to avoid my wife's career, she overcame me at every turn, dragging her all around the world. So yeah, I'll, I'll stick with military spouse. Great. And finally, the last question, what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? I had a friend tell me before going to the Naval Academy, you have to take the good with the bad. And then I'd say going even deeper than that, it's like, basically look at all your problems through first and third world lenses. And, you know, I think when we first got on this call, I mentioned being frustrated around AirPods and stuff. It's like, what, what a laughable problem, you know, the things we get frustrated about every day. But I think as, as long as you have that mindset, that really will guarantee an optimistic outlook. I think the only thing we have guaranteed right now is this moment right now and kind of just having that outlook and having a positive outlook is the way forward. That's great advice. Well, Wes, thank you for joining us today. It's great to see you as always. And we really appreciated the opportunity to hear more about your background and also learn more about Scouts. So thank you so much. No, my pleasure. Thanks, guys. And follow us on Twitter at ProofVC or on our website at proof.vc.